Welcome, everyone. Um, so what we're going to do is we'll begin bowing our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for this evening. We do thank you that your faithfulness extends to all generations for those who trust in you. And we thank you so much, Heavenly Father, that you're our great creator, but also the sustainer of all things. And I ask, Heavenly Father, that today and tonight you would use these words from this message to perhaps bring some atheists to the knowledge that you exist and ultimately to the saving knowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we do pray, Heavenly Father, that all of us would be sharpened to be able to articulate a defense for the faith for all those who ask, and we do it with gentleness and respect. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So notice the title of the message this evening is, Yes, We Can Prove God's Existence. Now that is a deliberate, satirical takeoff on a 2008 campaign slogan that I'm sure many of you are aware of. But remember, in the 2008 campaign slogan, when they said, yes, we can, what they meant was that they could quench the seas, make them recede, and heal the planet. That's what God can do. My claims this evening are more modest than that. What I'm going to do is merely prove the God that actually exists. And so I'm claiming that we can prove that God exists, and it's something that every single person should agree to and should realize is true because it corresponds to reality. Remember David said in Psalm 14.1, he said, a fool says in his heart that there is no God. That's what a fool says. And so it's foolish to think that there indeed is no God. Now, the belief in the existence of God, of course, is part and parcel with our gospel. Think about our good news. What kind of good news would we have if there wasn't a God who existed to raise us up from the dead and to love us and to save us from our sins? Of course, when we would die, we'd be just so much fodder in the ground. That's not good news. So the existence of God is part and parcel to the good news that we have. But it's also necessary, the existence of God, for a society to function correctly. There was a famous saying many years ago, I'm not sure who said it, but the saying was this, to prove the existence of God and the fact that people would believe in the existence of God sails the human fleet in one direction, but when people deny the existence of God, it sails the human fleet in quite another. And I think what's so insightful there is if you look at societies that deny the existence existence of God, people end up becoming God, whether it be government or they themselves in their actions. So the existence of God is important for the gospel, and it's also important for culture in general. Now, I want to talk about, should we prove the existence of God? I'm going to talk about some rebuttals that I've seen in my own life and some objections that I've received when I used to be at seminary. I was always involved with apologetics. I always enjoyed it. But I have to say, when you go to a seminary where the majority opinion is postmodern, where people don't believe that you can have truth, when you tell them that you can prove anything, they don't like it. So I want to share some objections with you that I've heard and some of my rebuttals to them. I remember one gal, she gave me this objection when I was in seminary. She was supposedly a believer, and she said, you know, we shouldn't prove God's existence because that's putting God in a box. Now, how many of you have heard that sort of objection, perhaps when you're teaching Christian doctrine? Well, let me just say this. It does not put God in a box to prove his existence. In fact, I would say he's in a smaller box if he didn't exist. Now, I also want you to think about if you proved your own existence, does that put you in a box? Well, of course not. So I'm not attempting to put anybody in a box, nor would I try to do that, especially with God. God is not in a box, and to define that he exists and to explain who he is is not putting him in a box. Number two, there's a, also an objection that I've heard. This typically occurs from people that are called presuppositionalists, and they would say there's really no reason to engage in apologetics and especially use the natural revelation. So they would argue we shouldn't use natural revelation because sinners reject it anyway. And what they would often cite is, remember in Romans 1.20, Paul says that what may be known about God, his divine attributes and his eternal power 
have been clearly seen through what has been made so that all are without excuse. And they say, yet, if you read the rest of Romans 1, 21, all the way to verse 32, what do people do with that knowledge? They suppress it to the point that they end up worshiping and serving the creation rather than the creator who is forever praised. And so they say, why should we give natural revelation to the unregenerate? Now, just to make sure we're all on the same page, remember, natural revelation is what we can know through nature. Through Sometimes we call it general revelation. And we can know some true things about God. Romans 1.20 states that. We can know God is eternal, and we can know something of his divine power. Okay, that's natural revelation. When we talk about special revelation, now we're talking about the scriptures. So the argument from these presuppositionalists is that we should not use natural revelation because the unregenerate will just reject it. But my rebuttal to that is, is that not what the unregenerate does to the gospel? Is that not what they do to the special revelation? And so being that the unregenerate reject the special revelation, should that preclude us from preaching the gospel or teaching the Bible? Well, certainly not. No Christian would agree with that. So I don't think that there's any merit. Here's how we have to think. All truth is God's truth. He made it all. And so whether it's the heavens that declare the glory of God or it's his scriptures, it's all his truth. But saying that, we have to be clear. Our goal in apologetics is always to bring people to the divine or special revelation because it's there that they can be saved. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So that's where we always want to go. But first of all, we can use natural revelation to move the ball forward. Number three, this is another objection that I've heard. It is impossible for finite people to prove an infinite God. And you'll hear this not only in an objection against us using apologetics, but also to teach any Christian doctrine. Now, here's, let's think about that. We are finite people. And what I would say is, yes, it's true that we're never going to be able to exhaustively know God. And I think that that's actually wonderful news. In other words, all the way through eternity, we'll keep learning about who he is. So we'll never be able to exhaust all of who God is. But just because we are finite people, that does not preclude the ability for us to know some true things about him. So the Christian claim is not that we know God exhaustively, every scintilla of who he is, but it's that we know true things about him, yes, from the general revelation, but also more particularly and more expansively in the divine revelation in Scripture. So my point in saying all these things is I don't think the objections to apologetics and to give evidence for why you believe in the existence of God in the gospel, I don't think that they really have any merit. So I want to show you our calling, and this is a calling that we have from Scripture. I'm going to share with you 1 Peter 3.15, but realize there's many other passages. We could look at Jude 3, which calls us to contend for the faith once for all handed down to the saints. And we know that Paul was often engaged in persuading those in the synagogue about the truth of the gospel. So persuasion is part of the Christian call, and we see that in 1 Peter 3.15. There Peter says this, he says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. Now notice the beginning of that verse where Peter says, But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Sanctify, remember, means to set apart. Now in Asia Minor, that's, the audience that Peter would have been addressing, they had the problem of the Caesar. The Roman emperor was the one who proclaimed himself to be Lord. And if at some point during the year you didn't have a certificate that showed you had bowed your knee to Caesar and declared him to be Lord, you're going to be in big trouble. And so many of these Christians that Peter was addressing, they were undergoing severe persecution but he sets off their task in apologetics to give a defense by saying, you don't make and worry about Caesar being Lord. You set Christ apart as being Lord. At the end of the day, we answer to God and no other man. And so what Peter's really saying is fear God, don't fear man. 
That's what he's saying. And so that's the beginning of the apologetic task is to realize we don't fear anything that man can do. Jesus, by the way, my little boy has a memory verse. It's Matthew 10, 28. It's one that I often give in the gospel. Remember, that's where Jesus says, and do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. We're not to fear man. So that's the first part of the apologetic task. Only fear Christ and set him apart. But notice also we're called to give a defense. And the term there, apologia, in Greek has to do with a rational defense in response to allegations or questions. So notice this, the call is for a rational defense. It's not simply to say, well, it works for me. <laughs> right? Why would that not be sufficient? Because the Buddhist can say that. An atheist could say that. It works for them. They haven't died thus far, right? So we're called to give a rational defense. Notice it's to everyone who asks you to give what? An account. Now, the term account there is logos, all right? The term logos is often translated word, but sometimes it is also translated as logic or reason. In fact, let me just have you jot down a citation Matthew 5.32, listen to what Jesus says on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, but I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason, there's logos, of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So notice Jesus using the term logos there, not just for a generic word, but for a reason. The logic of divorcing someone. And so the point is there's going to be the world asking us the logic or the reason why we believe what we believe. It's not simply to say then in response, it works for me. What's required is a rational defense. Also notice that they're asking these people, the unregenerate, for the hope that is in you. And the hope is significant because the hope has to do with a certainty. Now, I'll put all this together in just a moment. I'm going to show you how it refutes the postmodern approach to Christian living. Postmodernity says you can't know truth, and you don't try to give a response. All you're to do is to join in in what the world is doing. Well, that's not the call that we see here in 1 Peter 3.15. Notice the hope here. The term is elpis in Greek, and it looks a lot like elpis. The reason I say that is because that reminds me of Elvis, and Elvis reminds me that people hope that he's still alive. Oh. Oh, mm. <laughs> that's the workings of a brain that's very ill, right? <laughs> that's how I remembered it in Greek. I had to go that far to remember anything. But here's what I want you to think about. When you think about our Western culture and America, we often use hope in a way that's completely foreign to the New Testament biblical writers. We will say, oh, I hope the IRS doesn't audit me. Or I hope the Vikings actually break 500 this season or you know, win a playoff game or whatever, whatever the case may be. Well, in the New Testament, hope is an assured thing. There's a 100% chance of your resurrection if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. That's how LPs functions here. It's a 100% certainty that you and I have because our promises are based on the character of God. And so what I want you to see is in this short passage, we're called to give a defense, which is a rational defense. It has to do with reason and logic, and it has to do with the certainty of our hope. Reason, rational thinking, certainty. And brothers and sisters, this is what the postmodern generation lacks. They can't be certain of anything, and yet this is our great high calling, not to become postmodern saying, yeah, who knows what's true? We'll just join in in what the world is doing. No, our great task is to say, I know what's true. I know that my Redeemer lives, as Job said, and to say it with great confidence. And so part of that is, again, giving a rational defense as to why we know that we know that the great God who's called us in Jesus Christ to be saved from this perverse generation does indeed exist. So with that is our calling. So let me show you where we must go. Let me show you how our enemy thinks. And our enemy isn't people, it's Satan. And Satan has given very bad ideas 
to agnostics and atheists. I see this when I go out witnessing with my friend Jeff Framke. He's a wonderful evangelist. I'll tell you a story later about him. But we see it all the time. Many people are blinded by very bad ideas. So let me just talk about agnostics and atheists and the ideas that they have. And I'm going to show you in syllogism form, two premises followed by a conclusion. First of all, an atheist believes that supernatural causes are not possible. So let's say I go proclaim to them the gospel that contains the resurrection, obviously. That's one of the central tenets of our gospel. They don't believe that. They don't believe it's possible. Why? Because supernatural causes are not possible. And so we're saying the the resurrection is supernatural. So notice the logic. Supernatural causes are not possible, premise one. Premise two, the resurrection is supernatural. Therefore, to the atheist, the resurrection is not possible. Now, let me assert something that may be kind of shocking, but I'll temper it here in just a moment. This is a valid argument. Now, just saying that it's a valid argument does not mean it's true. Okay? So, in other words, what I'm showing here is that the way they've constructed their argument is in valid form. They have not committed any formal fallacies. But that does not mean that this argument is a sound argument. If the logical argument, the syllogism, is in valid form and the two premises are true, then you have a sound argument and the conclusion is necessarily true. But the problem that they have is what? The first premise. Their first premise does not accord with reality. In fact, supernatural causes are possible. And so that's where you and I must go. To the atheist, we can't just sit there and pound them on premise two. The resurrection is supernatural. They know that. We know that. But they don't believe that the supernatural is even possible. So we take issue with premise one. That's where we must go. Okay? To do otherwise is to engage in circular reasoning. Think about this. Think about a little boy who asks you, why does the sky look blue? And if you merely assert, well, the sky looks blue because it looks blue, you haven't added anything to the discussion. All you've done is you've taken your conclusion and you've put it up in your premises. Okay, it's circular reasoning. It's reasoning like this. You must believe the Bible because the Bible says the Bible's true. So believe the Bible because the Bible says the Bible is true. Now, I agree that the Bible's true, and I agree that there's no higher authority than God, but it's still circular reasoning. So what we're going to do is we're going to break into that circle, and we're going to show evidence from the natural revelation that, yes, a supernatural cause, not just, well, perhaps it, it must exist. It must exist. And therefore, what we're going to do is we're going to turn it on its head. We're going to say supernatural causes are possible, in fact, are necessary, Therefore, the resurrection is possible. I'm sorry, the resurrection is supernatural. Therefore, the resurrection is possible. So we're going to turn the argument on its head. Okay, all right, now let's talk about our tactics. There are four different arguments for proving the existence of God historically. The four different arguments that have been used, now there's all sorts of variations and there's other arguments beyond this, but the four major ones that Christian apologists have used through the generations are the cosmological argument. Cosmos has to do with the universe. It's proving that the universe basically is not eternal, and therefore there must be an eternal being. There's the ontological argument. That comes from a Greek verb, ontos, which has to do with being or existence. And that really ties in with the cosmological argument. Realize something has to be eternal. It has to exist eternally. Why? Because if there was ever a time that there was nothing, there'd be nothing now. And so the ontological argument is used as well. The third argument that's typically used is what's called the teleological argument. Telos has to do with design. It has to do with a goal. And so the idea is that a design presupposes a designer. And then the fourth argument that's been used through the centuries has been the moral argument. How can anyone claim that there's a moral absolute without there being the standard of all absolutes? If there's no God, everyone is able to do what's right in their own eyes. 
Okay, so those are the arguments. Now, the two that I like to use most often are the cosmological argument and the teleological argument. The cosmological argument is where we're going to show that the universe can't be eternal and therefore the only eternal being must be God. There has to be an eternal being and it's nothing in the universe. And the universe is all that exists apart from God. And so we'll show that. We also are going to use the teleological argument. Now, why am I getting away from the moral argument? Because it's hard. When you're out in the street and you say, well, you know, unless you have this divine standard, you have no morality, people will fight you tooth and nail on it. And it's very hard to prove. It just people don't, don't reason well. The cosmological argument, as you're going to see, is very handy. So I think these are your best arguments. Now, notice I call the cosmological a priori reasoning. That has to do with a priori simply means from the earlier. And all that means is that you can rule certain things out. Okay, let me give you an example here. A priori has to do with arguing from cause to effect and yields necessary conclusions. That's logical argumentation. It's deductive reasoning. Okay, so let me give you an example. By definition, if you have something round, you can a priori rule out that it's not square. In other words, you don't have to look any further. You can say, if it's round, it can't be square. By definition, you don't have to pull out a test tube. You don't have to test it. You don't have to engage in any scientific induction. You merely know that if it is round, a priori, by definition, you know that it cannot be square. You don't have to go any further. All right. Uh, the other kind of reasoning that we're talking about is a posteriori, which has to do from effect to cause. That's scientific reasoning. But notice that yields probable conclusions. So one of the strengths of our cosmological argument is we're going to be using a priori reasoning to a certain extent which yields necessary conclusions. We're going to show that the universe doesn't exist or isn't eternal and therefore there must be an eternal being known as God. So think of example one. I'll give you an example of a priori reasoning. This is what we're going to go to. Self-creation can be ruled out a priori. In other words, you don't have to go any further than if someone says to you, I believe in self-creation, you say, er, foolish, <laughs> absurd. You don't have to go any further than that. You don't have to take it and put it in a test tube. Why? Because it violates the law of non-contradiction. It violates the law of causality. Think about it. the law of non-contradiction. If A, then not non-A at the same time in the same relationship. Self-creation would have something not exist and then exist at the same time to put itself in existence. That's absurd. So we can rule that out. Nothing can self-create itself. And isn't that wonderful that when we read the pages of the Bible, the Bible doesn't declare that God created himself. The Bible declares that God is eternal. Psalm 90, verse 1, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So he's the eternal one, right? Now, let me give you an example, too, of a posteriori reasoning. An eternal universe is ruled out a posteriori. Now, how can we do that? By using the second law of thermodynamics. Now we're going to actually look at scientific observation and say, can that universe be eternal? And once we look at the scientific evidence, we'll say no. But once we've concluded that it's not eternal, well, something has to be eternal because you can't have self-creation. So we go back to a posteriori. Do you see how they relate to each other? So again, a posteriori reasoning is scientific, a priori reasoning is logical. A priori reasoning yields necessary conclusions. Scientific reasoning, a posteriori, yields probable conclusions. They may be very highly probable, but they're still probable. Okay, all right, now let's move on then to the cosmological argument. This is what I would recommend. If you're going to sit down with an atheist or an agnostic, you can take a sheet of paper and take it to your local favorite restaurant, and you can write this out, and it's very effective. It'll help them see 
what the issues are. When we look at the cosmological argument, what we're going to see is that there's only four possibilities for the beginning of the universe. Whatever scenario you may dream up of, it will fall within one of these four categories. By the way, let me just cite a source. Back in 1996, I was at my mom and dad's cabin, and I read a wonderful book by R.C. Sproul. It was called Not a Chance. And he is the one who uses this very argument, the cosmological argument. So that's a wonderful book. If you ever have a chance to read it, Not a Chance by R.C. Sproul. It is a wonderful read, and you'll learn a lot of, lot of good stuff there. But here's what he uses, and I've used this all along since that time. The first possibility for the beginning of the universe is that the universe is, is just an illusion. It doesn't really exist. Now, I often joke, if anyone claims that everything that you see is only an illusion, I say just run away. <laughs> it seems so absurd they may be unbalanced or something. But nonetheless, we want to throw it out there as a possibility. Number two, the universe self-created itself. Now, we've already talked about the problems with that, but we'll come back to that. Number three, the universe is eternal. Number four, there is an eternal being who created the universe. Now, the reason why I say this encompasses any possible scenario that you could ever come up with, let's say you're living in a room and you think that the only thing that exists is that room. It would still fall within these categories. The room is either an illusion the room either self-created itself, is eternal, or there was an eternal being who created that room. Okay, Anything you can ever come up with will fall within one of those four categories. All right. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to use only two principles. This is all you have to remember. Two principles to eliminate these three options, and therefore you're going to be left with option four, which is there has to be an eternal being outside of the universe, namely God. Okay, so how do we do that? Well, the first principle that we're going to be using is a simple principle. Out of nothing, nothing comes. If there ever was a time that there was nothing, you'd have nothing now. Now, let me show you how this principle applies to option one and two. Let's begin with number one. Think about the universe being an illusion. How many in here have ever heard of Rene Descartes? Most of you have. Rene Descartes was a famous mathematician and logician, and he drove himself crazy for a period in his life where he was trying to come up with a firm foundation of knowledge. In other words, he wanted to prove that he knew that he knew that something existed. So he went on a process of doubt. He started doubting everything. He doubted himself. He doubted the existence of his home. He doubted everything. But one day in his despair of trying to come up with some certainty, he realized that when he was doubting, he was doing something. And what he realized is doubting is thinking. And thinking is doing something. And nothing can't do something. And therefore, he proved his existence. And that's the famous, I think, therefore I am. Nothing can't do something. So he knew by the very fact that he was doubting that he existed. And so therefore he concluded, no, the universe and everything within it, it cannot be an illusion. All right, so all you have to do is realize that if you're doubting, you're doing something, you're thinking, and nothing can't do something, therefore you've proven your own existence. And it doesn't matter what you prove to exist, you just prove anything. If you proved lint existed, well then the lint is not an illusion. And therefore, the lint is either self-created, eternal, or there is an eternal being who created that lint. You just have to prove anything exists. And Rene Descartes did that for us. I think, therefore I am. So we rule out number one. Because if you exist, you can't self-create yourself. right? So we can rule number one out a priori. So number two then, the universe self-created itself. Okay, well, is that possible? No, because it violates the law of non-contradiction. Again, anytime anything violates the law of non-contradiction, it is an absurdity. Okay, now, next time we get together, I'll show you why the law of non-contradiction cannot be gotten rid of. 
we'll talk about that, and Bob and I will probably interact with that discussion a little bit. The law of non-contradiction is immutable. Okay, and one of the reasons, I'll just give you a hint, you have to use it in order to try to get rid of it. There was a friend of ours, uh, Bob knows him a little bit, Norman Geisler, who we love dearly. He had a famous saying, anytime you try to prove that something doesn't exist by using that thing, you don't have a very good case. <laughs> and I think that that's very well said. In other words, if you try to get rid of the law of non-contradiction, you have to use it because the law of non-contradiction can't not exist and exist at the same time, <laughs> right? If someone says the law of non-contradiction doesn't exist and you say, oh, I see, so it exists, they would have to say, well, no. And the only reason they would say no is because they're using the law of non-contradiction. So you can't get around it. So the law of non-contradiction says that the universe cannot self-create itself because it would have to not exist, but at the same time and in the same relationship exist to put itself into existence. It's absurd. So you and I can rule that out. We don't have to put it in a test tube or look to any scientific study. We can just say, well, that's not possible. So look at what we've done. We've boiled it all down now just to two possibilities. Okay, now that's where our second principle comes in. The second principle is the second law of thermodynamics. Now this is a law of science. What you're going to see is that is going to rule out that the universe is eternal. And because the universe isn't eternal and all those other options are out, you're left with only option four. So what I'm going to go on to do then is I'm going to... Oh, before I do, though, I want to tell you a story. Let me tell you the story, and this will illustrate, I think, the sad shape our academia is in today in America. Years ago, I have a friend, Jeff Ramke. I mentioned him earlier. He is a wonderful evangelist. I mean, this guy could sell an Eskimo refrigerator. He has a way with people and they listen to the gospel to him, and he, they just, they are eating out of his hand. He can approach anybody off the street, just a very gifted evangelist. Well, one day we're going to meet our wives at dinner, but he has this great idea. He says, Eric, before we go to dinner, why don't we stop by the atheist convention? And I say, Jeff, that sounds great. While we're at it, why don't we get a root canal? You know? <laughs> why don't we get a root canal done on the way? That sounds like a blast. But, but Jeff, I know how good he is, so I say, okay, let's do that. So we go to the atheist convention downtown, and we run into, of all people, P.Z. Myers. Now, does anybody know who P.Z. Myers is? He's a Ph.D. in biology from the University of Minnesota Morris. He was in that movie Expelled, uh, Ben Stein. Remember that production that Ben Stein had put out? Well, he was in that, and he was also on a clip that you'll see on YouTube if you put in Ray Comfort. Ray Comfort actually does a wonderful job in showing atheists the folly of their views, and P.Z. Myers is somebody that he interviews. So P.Z. Myers is his rabid atheist, and so Jeff and I come trodden in there. We're going to give the gospel to these atheists, and all of a sudden I end up in this debate with P.Z. Myers. He's setting up his materials. And so what I end up doing is putting him in this quandary whereby he was either going to have to declare the universe to be eternal, which would violate the second law of thermodynamics, or he was going to have to believe in self-creation, which is an absurdity. Nothing can self-create itself. So I think for sure he's got to go after the second law of thermodynamics. Nope. He tried to claim that at the quantum level of physics, nothing could do something. And I looked at everybody as they were coming to listen to this learned man, and I looked at all these atheists as they were coming in, and I said, don't you realize what your beloved teacher is saying? He says that nothing can do something. And you guys have a problem with us believing in God? You believe in magic, pixie dust. Nothing can do something. No, nothing could ever do something. You have far more faith than we do. So, dear ones, realize there is an absurd mind at the root of academia today because they don't like God because their deeds are evil. They become absurd. Okay, so I just want you to realize that these items that I'm talking to you, they really are applicable in our daily lives. There are professors in academia today who hold to these ideas, and we have to be able to give a response. Okay, so with that, let me talk now and prove about the universe not being eternal. We're going to eliminate option three. These are the items, our principles, that would eliminate 
the possibility of the universe being eternal. The first is the second law of thermodynamics. Second is the motion of galaxies. Third is the radiation background in the universe. Number four is the cooling rate of radiation. Now, there's more evidence than that, but these four are good, and I think number one is devastating. Let's look at the second law of thermodynamics. This is according to Norman Geisler, and I think he gives a very accurate account here of this law of physics. Remember the first law of physics? The first law of thermodynamics says that energy cannot be created nor destroyed. You have a fixed amount. But the second law says that all of the energy within a closed system is in decay. That's what Geisler is going to point out here. He says, according to this law, the amount of usable energy in the universe is decreasing. Or stated another way, in a closed, isolated system, the amount of usable energy is decreasing. Or left to themselves, things tend to, tend to disorder. No matter which way it is stated, this law shows that an eternal universe would have run out of usable energy or reached a state of total disorder. Since it has not, it must have had a beginning. Does everybody realize the implications of the second law of thermodynamics? Let me give a little diagram up here. Notice this line. I put this line on here for a reason. I want you to think of this blue line as representing the lifespan of the universe. And so think of this blue line extending in that direction to infinity and the other direction as well. It just goes on forever. What the second law of thermodynamics says is that you only have this much energy. And remember, if this is all the energy you have, you have to apply this limited amount of energy in the infinity past. So think of this as representing the past, this direction. You have to take this and put it, that little chunk of energy, in the past to infinity. Right? Well, what does that mean? We'd be out of energy by now. If that were true, my computer wouldn't be working, my heart wouldn't be beating, I, we'd have no class tonight. We'd all be off. <laughs> right? It doesn't line up. You can't have an infinite lifespan of a universe with a finite supply of usable energy. It's devastating. And notice, this isn't just some theory or hypothesis. This is the second law of thermodynamics. This has stood the rigor of time. And the second law, where does that not apply in the universe? It applies to the whole thing. And so there's no way out. So the atheist then is going to be left in a quandary. Do they deny that law and say that the universe is eternal, so they're unscientific? Or do they try to claim that the universe can self-create itself and become irrational? Those are the only options they have. The atheist is either going to have to be unscientific or irrational. That's the quandary we're going to put them in. Okay, so I'm also going to show you that the universe cannot be eternal because of the motion of the galaxies. This comes from a man named Robert Jastrow. He was the head of Goddard's NASA Space Institute. He was a former agnostic, but he actually becomes a theism through his investigation, or I'm sorry, a theist. Listen to what Jastrow says, page 95, regarding the motion of the galaxies. It says, scientists argue that the universe is not simply in a holding pattern, maintaining its movement from everlasting to everlasting. So he says it's not eternal. It now appears that all the galaxies are moving outward, as if from a central point of origin, and that all things are expanding faster in the past, or were expanding faster in the past than they are now. Looking out into space, we are also looking back in time. We are seeing things as they were when the light was given off by those stars many years ago. And he goes on to say, using a 200-inch telescope, Alan Sandage compiled information on 42 galaxies as far as 6 billion light years away. His measurements indicate that the universe was expanding more rapidly in the past than it is today. This result lends further support to the belief that the universe exploded into being, unquote. Now, sometimes Christians become somewhat apoplectic when they hear this Big Bang idea that the universe exploded into being, realize it's a great friend of ours. Because all you and I have to do is prove that the universe isn't eternal. So we know who is the one who put it into being. But we have to realize that here's the head of NASA's Goddard Space Institute who is saying that the universe isn't eternal. Well, if it's not eternal, it certainly can't self-create itself. That's absurd. We win. Jastrow is saying that. Now, there's other evidence. 
we have the radiation background in the universe. Listen to what Jastrow goes on to say. He says, no explanation other than the Big Bang has been found for the fireball radiation. The clincher, which has convinced almost the last doubting Thomas, is that the radiation discovered by Penzias and Wilson, these are two astronomers, has exactly the pattern of wavelengths expected for the light and heat produced in a great explosion. Supporters of the steady state theory have tried desperately to find an alternative explanation, but they have failed, unquote. Now, what's significant about that is what he's saying is if you had an explosion, a beginning to the universe, you would expect radiation, a radiation background of a certain wavelength. And sure enough, that's exactly what the astronomers and the physicists have found. So what does that mean? Well, it means that the universe had a beginning. Well, that's devastating. Now, notice he mentions supporters of the steady state theory. Some of you have, may have heard of a man named Frederick Hoyle. Frederick Hoyle tried to claim that the universe always existed. And he proposed something known as the steady state theory. And that theory was that hydrogen atoms just came into being. Now, what's the problem with that? Well, that's self-creation, isn't it? There was a time that you had no hydrogen atoms, and then they had to exist at the same time to put themselves into existence. Well, that's absurd. That's believing in magic, isn't it? And so what Jastrow is simply saying, now remember, he was an agnostic. He's saying they're failing. We know that the universe had a beginning. So the radiation background shows us this. Now, let me give you another quote here. This is from Hugh Ross. He talks about the cooling rate of the radiation background. Hugh Ross is a believer. He says, according to the Big Bang, the older and more expanded the universe becomes, the cooler its cosmic background radiation. Measurements of the cosmic background radiation at distances so great that we are looking back to when the universe was just a half a quarter or an eighth of its present age show temperature measures that are hotter than the present 2.726 Kelvin by exactly the amount that the Big Bang theory predicts. That is, astronomers actually witness the universe growing cooler and cooler through time, unquote. What Hugh Ross is simply saying is that it had a beginning. He's saying the same thing that Jastrow is. It was warmer and it's cooling. Why? Because it's not eternal. It's in decay. And that's completely in accord with the second law of thermodynamics. So, where have we gone then? We're going to show the only viable option. Let's go back to our four possibilities for the beginning of the universe. And again, at a Perkins or wherever you are, you can show this. What you can do is you can show that you've eliminated these three options. The universe is not an illusion. Why? Because something exists. If you think, you exist. Because nothing can't do something. You know the universe can self-create itself. That's absurd. And we know that the universe can't be eternal. Why? The second law of thermodynamics. So you've ruled out all three. So what's the only option left? It's number four. There is an eternal being who created the universe. Now, let me go back to P.Z. Myers. Remember I was talking about we went to that atheist convention. When I had shown the audience that P.Z. Myers believed that nothing could do something, well, they started to become angry with me. <laughs> I'm thinking, well, your teacher is the one who believes in magic. Why are you mad at me? But they started saying, well, why don't you go, you guys, and go worship your flying spaghetti monster? So they blasphemed God by calling him a flying spaghetti monster. Because what they say is, hey, if you're going to believe in a creator, it may as well be the flying spaghetti monster, just as you would claim it's the God of the Bible. Now, that's something that I think lesser minds laugh about or think is a witty comeback to us as Christians, here's the problem with it. When you start unpacking what this flying spaghetti monster must be, first of all, he must be eternal. So now we have an eternal flying spaghetti monster. And this flying spaghetti monster must be so powerful that he could create all things and sustain them. And this flying spaghetti monster is a moral being because he has created moral people who claim things are right and wrong, good and bad, evil and good. 
And so now you must have a flying spaghetti monster who is eternal, all-powerful, and moral. And so this flying spaghetti monster starts to look a lot like the God of the Bible, doesn't it? And so do you see how their insults are merely just them piling up wrath for the day of wrath? And it's frightening, isn't it? They don't like God. They don't have an intellectual case. They have a moral aversion to who he is. That's the real problem. Let me leave you with one of my favorite quotes of any secular author I have ever read. Jastrow, this makes me grin every time I read it. Robert Jastrow concludes in his book, God and the Astronomers. It's not the absolute conclusion, but it's a conclusion in a section. Listen to what Jastrow says. He says, quote, For the scientist who has lived by his faith and the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. As he pulls himself over the final rock, he's greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries, unquote. I love that. So these scientists, the picture is they're scaling the mountains of ignorance and they get to the top and these theologians, these rascals have been sitting there all along because God really exists. And they finally figured that out. Isn't that great? This is from the head of NASA's Goddard Space Institute. How many of our school children are told this? Brothers and sisters, we've got to get it out. God exists, and we can prove it. Okay. It's the only viable option. Now, I want to move on to the next argument, the teleological argument. The teleological argument, remember, has the root from telos in Greek, which means goal or design. And the idea would be design presupposes a designer. So let me give you our syllogism. All things, premise one, designed must have a designer. Premise two, the universe is a thing that was designed. Conclusion, therefore the universe must have a designer. Okay, that's what we're going to show. So now, remember, we already used a priori reasoning because we proved that if you don't have an eternal universe, you can rule out the fact that the universe is all there is. Remember, Carl Sagan used to say, the universe is all there ever was, all there ever is, and all there ever will be. We've ruled that out a priori. <laughs> That's for free, my Carl Sagan's impersonation. So now we're moving on to the teleological argument, which is de- inductive reasoning. Now we're going to start looking at evidence. Can we really look at the universe and say there's design? So specifically, we're going to say we have to prove number two, premise two that the universe indeed was designed. Okay, that's what we're going to be looking at. I'm going to do three things, three different ways. We're going to be looking at astronomy. We're going to be looking at physics and chemistry. I'm going to have Bob in a couple of weeks when we come back. Remember, next Wednesday's prayer. But when we come back in two weeks, I'm going to have Bob share about the heme molecule. That's actually what led him to be a theist when he was at uh, Iowa State. State. (laughs) Iowa State, I'll have him share that. And then number three, we're going to be looking at microbiology. Now, the reason we're going to get into microbiology is because that's going to refute macroevolution, Darwinian evolution. So we're going to take a whack at that by looking at the theory of irreducible complexity. So let's begin with astronomy. Before I move to the next slide, astronomy is amazing. And I've learned more about it in the last couple of weeks than I've ever known before, and it's very exciting. Let me explain how astronomy points to design. Carl Sagan's, if we think about him again, do you remember years ago when he would be on TV, he would say, planet Earth is just one among many. There's billions and billions of planets that are like Earth, right? Billions and billions. He loved to say that. Well, the idea was that Earth was really not special at all. It was just a run-of-the-mill planet, and there's billions of them like that. That's not true. And what astronomers are increasingly realizing is that the Earth is exceedingly rare. Now, here's why. There's three different types of galaxies. There is an elliptical galaxy, an irregular galaxy, and a spiral galaxy. Two of those three are completely unable to support life. The elliptical galaxy and the irregular one are completely unable to sustain life. The reason why is there are such collisions within those galaxies and there are such, e- e- there are such emitting of 
X-ray radiation, gamma radiation, and particle radiation that life simply can't exist. So the only galaxy that's able to support life is a spiral galaxy. Now, of the spiral galaxy, here's the problem with a spiral galaxy. By the way, we're in a spiral galaxy. We're in the Milky Way. The problem is if you're too close to the middle of a spiral galaxy, there's a black hole. And the black hole has such tidal gravitational pull that it destroys anything in its path. And when it destroys matter, it does it with such force that it sends, again, gamma radiation and particle radiation and X-ray radiation that would destroy all life. So the only way that you could survive in a spiral galaxy is if you were on a planet that is to the outer edge. But the problem with being on the outer edge is all the heavy elements are sucked into the black hole, and so you don't have the heavy elements necessary to support a planet like Earth. And so our planet Earth is far away on the outer rim, and it is absolutely exceedingly rare that you could have a planet that could have the heavy elements capable of supporting life. And so what we start looking at when we look at astronomy is we see that this is a put-up job. This whole thing, no, it's not billions and billions of planets that would work. In fact, you can rule out two out of three of every galaxy. And then of the spiral galaxies, there's only a fine window that you could have any sustainable life. And then within that sustainable window, you have to have a solar system. Its orbit doesn't become too elliptical. Because if the solar system, if it becomes elliptical, the orbit, it brings you to the danger zone. And you're torn apart by all the radiation because it brings you towards the center. And so we're, what the astronomers are starting to realize is this is a put-up job. Finely tuned. Finely tuned. It's design. Exactly right. Our planet is a put-up job. Evidence for design from astronomy. There's a man named, I'll put up his name here, Guillermo Gonzalez. He's a Ph.D. in astrophysics from the University of Washington, Seattle. That's who I'm borrowing this data from. Listen to what he says. He says, now let's put all this together. Now, let me just stop there because he had made an argument. He was talking about what I just alluded to, that the idea of having a galaxy a solar system and a planet that could sustain life is exceedingly rare. So he goes on to say this. He says, now, put all this together. The inner region of the galaxy, and he's just talking about our kind of galaxy, is much more dangerous from radiation and other threats. The outer part of the galaxy isn't going to be able to form Earth-like planets because the heavy elements are not abundant enough. And I haven't even mentioned, he says, how the thin disk of our galaxy helps our sun stay in its desirable circular orbit. A very eccentric orbit would cause it to cross spiral arms and visit dangerous inner regions of the galaxy. But being circular, it remains in the safe zone. So what you start realizing is there's such a tiny safe zone, and we happen to remain in it, but if our solar system had just a little bit of a more of an elliptical orbit, we'd all be done. No life would be possible. It's a put-up job. It shows design. Now, let me list several things that show this. He says that the Earth's orbit is almost circular, and it's needed for temperature control. If the Earth's orbit was in any way elongated, you would have periods where you'd be very cold or very warm, and life wouldn't be possible. Now, what's very interesting about the Earth's orbit is Jupiter, if that was, because remember Jupiter is 300 times the mass of Earth, if that orbit was at all elongated, it would pull on Earth and we'd become elongated. So Jupiter has to be exactly where it is. If it's any closer to us, we're done. But if it's any further away, as I'll show you, we would take comic hits. Comet hits, I said, I think I said comic hits. Comics are bad enough, but comets are even worse. Asteroid hits, okay? Asteroid hits that would wipe out life as we know it. Okay, so the Earth's orbit has to be just right. Jupiter's orbit is very circular. If not, the Earth would be pulled off trajectory and life would not be possible. That's what I just mentioned. Now, here's the real kicker. Jupiter's huge mass, 300 times that of Earth, absorbs and deflects huge quantities of life-ending comet impacts on Earth. Now, this was illustrated back in 1994, July. How many here have heard of the comet 
Shoemaker Levy 9. Oh, some of you have. Okay, well, wonderful. You guys know more about it than I do. Well, there was 21 parts to this comet, and it absolutely pummeled Jupiter. Now, Jupiter forms like a big punching bag for Earth. And if it wasn't there, these comets would have ended all life. It would have ended Earth a long time ago. But Jupiter, in its huge mass and where it sits in our solar system, takes all of these hits for us. All of those impacts on Jupiter back in July 1994, they would have wiped out Earth. And so you have to start realizing that now we have to have Jupiter in the exact spot. Any closer to us, it pulls our orbit off and we can't function. But if it's any further away, it doesn't form the blocking function. And so it takes all these hits for us. Isn't that shocking? Why? Because this is a put-up job. There's design here. Um, let me just read to you here. It says, this is this uh, Gonzalez. He says, quote, this was illustrated, this function of Jupiter being a blocker for us. He says, this was illustrated very nicely by the impact of comet Shoemaker Levy 9 into Jupiter in July 1994. This comet was attracted by Jupiter's tremendous gravitational pull and broke into fragments with all of them hitting Jupiter. Even Saturn and Uranus participate in that kind of comet catching for us, he says, unquote. So all of the planets that are large and further out, they, hit, they take hits for us. And if they didn't, we would perish. But the inner planets take it too. The inner planets take a bunch of asteroid hits from an asteroid belt that's closer to the sun. And without those, we'd also be wiped out. So you start seeing that, wow, everything is just right. It's exactly where it has to be. Now, what about the sun? The sun's size, he says, and the metal richness is both absolutely necessary for life and rare for this region of a galaxy. 80% of all stars that you see are red dwarfs. Red dwarfs are too small to support life because if that's the sun that we had, now these are 80% of all stars in the universe. If we had a red dwarf for our sun, our planet would have to be so close to it that the radiation would kill us. And we'd also have to be so close to it that it would pull, the gravitational pull would pull our, uh, our orbit and our planet off its axis so that life wouldn't be sustainable. All right, so 80% of all stars wouldn't work for us. But there's F-dwarf stars that are just a little bit bigger than ours, just a little bit. They wouldn't work either because their solar flares are too violent. In fact, listen to how precise our sun is. This is exceedingly rare. In fact, to have a sun like this in our spot of the galaxy, Gonzalez says it's, it's a miracle. To have the Earth in the position it is, it's a miracle. You shouldn't have heavy elements like that. But listen to what he says about the sun. He says the sun's light and its intensity only varies one-tenth of one percent. It's unprecedented and absolutely essential for life. It only varies what? One-tenth of one percent. A star just a little bit bigger would fluctuate so much or you'd either burn up or you'd freeze to death. We have the perfect sun, the perfect orbits, the perfect planets, the perfect solar system, the perfect galaxy. It's a put-up job. Now, we also have the perfect moon. The moon's gravitational pull keeps the Earth's axis tilt just at 23.5 degrees. If the moon wasn't in its autosynchronous rotation at the exact mass that it was, then the Earth would be pulled between an axis of 5 degrees and 85 degrees, meaning we'd either starve to death because we're cold or we'd burn up. Now, what's so interesting is, remember, there's an interplay between the moon and the tide and also the moon and the rotation of the Earth. Well, because everything was created and now is slowing down because of the second law of thermodynamics, get a load of this. The Earth's rotation, the tendency is for it to slow down. But remember when the astronauts went to the moon in the 1970s? They put mirrors on the moon. And so scientists are able to figure out that the moon is actually getting further from us by 3.82 centimeters per year. Well, the reason that's important and helpful, that it's just that much, is because if it didn't do that, the Earth's rotation would slow down even more. And so it's so finely, finely 
tune that if it wasn't the right mass and where it was, we would lose our 23 and a half degree tilt. But if it wasn't moving away just a little bit, the rotation would slow down. It's perfect, absolutely perfect. Of all the galaxies, we're in one that works. Of all the solar systems, we have one that works. Of all the planets, we have one that works. The moon, the, the sun, everything, it's a put-up job. Now, I'm going to leave you with this. We'll talk more about design and how design presupposes a designer when we come back next time. But I want to leave you with three biblical texts. And one of the passages that we're going to be turning to first is turn your Bibles, if you will, to Colossians 1, 16 through 17. This is something that Bob has just taught on, part of the Christ hymn, where Paul is showing the uniqueness of Christ and his supremacy. Again, this is Colossians 1, 16 through 17. Listen to what the divine revelation says of this God. It says, For by him, that's Christ, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Bob was pointing that out in the sermon. He's the sustainer of all things, and there's not one single random molecule in the universe. And you know what? We see that in its design. You and I, what really struck me the last couple of weeks and was very moving was I think we as readers of the Bible, we know that God has actually um, obviously saved us from the wrath of God through his son, which is the greatest news ever. He saved us from his wrath. But it never really dawned on me just how protected you and I, you and I are like little birds that are protected from all of these onslaughts, the asteroids, the radiation. He covers us and protects. We could have been wiped out so many times, but there's a God in heaven who's ordained everything. And so think about the rest of the world that you go out. You go out into the world, and these atheists and agnostics, they put out movies about the whole universe, or not the universe, but the whole earth being wiped out by a comic or comic, comet hit. Comics will do it too, but a comet hit. And everything's wiped out. But you and I know what? We know that Jesus sustains all things, and we've read the book of Revelation, we know that it doesn't end that way. So we don't have to fear, we can yawn. We can all go by the movies where it says, the earth ends, and we go, oh yeah, sure. We just walk by. And as they go out on a starry night, these people, if they have any fortune in their life, they say, oh, I thank my lucky stars. I thank my lucky stars. In fact, listen to what it says. Turn your Bibles to Romans 1, 21 and 25. I just showed you a lot of design and perfection. But notice what the unregenerate do with that. Romans 1, 21 and verse 25. I couldn't read it all just for the sake of time. So verse 21, remember this is after verse 20 where Paul says, all are without excuse because what may be known about God was made evident to them. In verse 21 he says, for even... Though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Now, skip down to verse 25. He says, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. So even though they saw the data, they go outside these unregenerate, and they say, Thank my lucky stars. They worship the creation, not the creator. You and I are the ones who know all of this is a put-up job. That the sun, moon, and stars are there for our protection, and they're exactly where they have to be. And so, no, it's not thank my lucky stars. It's thank my gracious God. Let me read to you a passage. This is the final passage I want to share with you. It's a passage that I had taught on a few weeks ago. And this is a passage about the coming of Christ. He comes in his kingdom. It's after the 70th week of Daniel. And the heavens are shaken. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, but in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. 
All of these things that I talked about that God uses to protect human life, they're going to be shaken because the Creator's coming back. And it's a final reminder to rebellious humanity that even their hope cannot be found in the creation, but it must be found in the Creator. And the wonderful news for you and I who are believers in Jesus is that we have a kingdom that is unshakable. So even though God shakes the very heavens when he returns, the people of God have a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem that lasts forever. So brothers and sisters, as you and I go out the door, it's not my lucky stars. It's thanking our gracious God. That's the kind of people we are to be. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for these great truths. And we thank you, Lord, that you're not only the creator of all things, but you're also the sustainer who protects us in ways that we're not even aware of. That every breath we take is from you. We live, move, and have our being in you. You protect us from asteroids and from radiation and from all these things that we're just not aware of because you love us. And you also sent your son who would die for us. We thank you for him, that he would shed his blood and protect us from your coming wrath. We thank you for the coming kingdom that we have, that it is indeed eternal. And Lord, we do pray for atheists and agnostics that we know as family members, friends, co-workers, loved ones. We pray, Lord, that you would give us opportunity to proclaim these truths to them, that you would soften their hearts so they would not reject you because of their aversion to the light. We just pray, Lord, that you would regenerate them and enable them to believe the gospel. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.